This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. These episodes are made possible by the Future of Truth, a project at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, generously funded by the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. The episode you're about to listen to is part of a series on Seeing Truth, a museum exhibit and subset of the Future of Truth project that seeks to challenge audiences to see art, science, and truth anew in this political moment. In these episodes, Seeing Truth project leader and art history professor Alexis L. Boylan interviews artists and academics about the relationship between art and science, the role of museums in the production of knowledge, and how we use the visual to make meaning. Hi, my name is Alexis Boylan. I am a professor of art history and Africana studies at the University of Connecticut and the director of academic affairs at the University of Connecticut's Humanities Institute. And I am very pleased today to be talking with Alexis Rockman. I will let him introduce himself in just a moment, but just to say all of the Seeing Truth exhibition and programming is generously funded by the Luce Foundation and also supported by the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute. So Alexis, do you want to, I hate introducing people because I just think it's like weird and invasive. So I want you to do it for yourself. So who are you? What do you do? Who am I? My name is Alexis Rockman, two Alexis's, two genders um, Mm -hmm. and two separate people. Mm -hmm. I am a artist who for the last 40 years have made work about the history of natural history, which includes my specialty, the bad news is the biodiversity crisis, climate change, and other struggles and issues that humans have a hard time confronting in their cultural history. So that's okay. what I do. So do you like or hate, like if someone were to call you an eco artist or a climb artist, like, do you like those terms or do you like, do you sort of bristle at those terms or? People are entitled to call me whatever they like. That's part of the deal of being an artist. I've been called an eco-warrior in the New Yorker, which is a flattering, my wife would challenge me describing myself since I seldom leave my studio, even though what I work on is about, you know, being a warrior to fight for the things I care about. But of course I take trips to places like Tasmania or Madagascar or Antarctica too. So I, I'm an artist and you can call me whatever you want. Okay. Okay. I mean, being an artist is kind of like being a warrior anyhow. So you don't even need to add the ego to it. Um, I, you know. um, anyway, that's a, that's a rabbit hole that we can circle the drain about. about. Yeah. Nature has clearly been a through line in your work. And I want to talk a little bit about how you came to first be engaged with the ideas, the cultural ideas of nature and how that became a sort of focus in your artwork. So sort of like origin story, your warrior or villain origin story. As a city kid, I grew up in Manhattan. 
I, every time I saw nature, I couldn't help but be aware that it was seen through the lens of having to go to a place. Manhattan's a very obviously artificial environment. Since I moved to rural Connecticut two years ago, I've been more and more aware of the sort of strangeness of that environment or how transformed it is even with a place like Central Park that has the perception and appearance of being so-called natural. It's completely a construct. My mom, who's an archaeologist, is working on Seneca Village, which used to be where Central Park is, which is an African-American homestead, so to speak. So I, even when I went to places like Australia as a kid, my dad was Australian. I was very aware that nature was something that was out there, but I was also very fascinated by how humans had transformed the planet because my mom's a scientist, I was very aware of, you know, what animals used to live in North America during the Ice Age, what happened to them. So those are the questions that I had. And I love drawing animals. I was an only kid I related to animals. And as I, you know, made my way through art school, I realized that there was a long tradition of representing so-called nature that contemporary art wasn't really embracing. So I thought, what an ideal opportunity for someone like me who loved drawing animals. If I could find a way to have that make sense in the rest of culture, I might be in business for myself. It seems that a lot of people who decide to do that go an illustrator route sort of more immediately. What made well, you- An illustrator basically sucks. I mean, I have a huge, huge love of the history of illustration and right. or contemporary illustrators, but they're treated- you know, like, you know, third rate citizens and who wouldn't want to be Picasso? Do you want to be like, you know, N.C. Wyeth or Picasso? I just thought that was a far better life to have and I might as well go for it while I'm young and I can always settle for illustration later. Be an illustrator. Okay. All right. Yeah, no. Not that I don't, and it's not a judgment. It's just, I noticed that illustration, people like Charles R. Knight who, or John Gurchie, they're both paleo artists, are basically treated terribly by the rest of culture. Right, right. Although it's so fascinating because their imagery is everywhere. So it, yeah. it is and sort it of influences pop culture and it influences a lot of people that make a lot of money, right? And a lot of clout. But I wanted to be the person in the room that could basically control my own production. Right, right. So I'm wondering what you, and I mean this in the entirely like kind of like ego saturated way that I'm about to ask it, but what do you think? your work and really, I mean, you can talk about your work specifically, but then art more broadly sort of adds to the dialogue of nature and science. I mean, I, I will say that this question is also embedded in, in constant conversations that I have with scientists where they often very quickly answer well, art has nothing to do with science. And then they quickly remember that they shouldn't say that. And then they sort of back it up. But so I, I, from an art, artistic perspective, and I want you to fully embrace the ego of that question. Like what, what are you contributing to these conversations? Well, I listen, I have very mixed feelings about this issue because I think that art is one of the few places where you can embrace and engage with ideas that has access to the rest of culture where you're not answering to a sponsor that might be challenged by the content that you're having a conversation with. So I think being an artist is fantastic. I think in America, artists, the rest of culture or the rest of America doesn't know what to make of artists and it doesn't really care about art other than some auction prices, which has very little to do with you know where I am in my career. I'm successful, but I don't command millions of dollars at auction. And that's, I don't, I don't see that in the cards in the near future. So on the one hand, I think it's fantastic from a personal level 
Do I think it has, I mean, let's, let's face it. I've been dealing with these issues and ideas since the mid eighties and things have gone off a cliff. So I've been a complete failure in terms of dealing with these issues and getting shit done that I want to get done, which is, you know, carbon emissions and conservation for the biodiversity crisis, habitat loss and stuff. So I consider myself a complete failure, but I think everyone's been a failure. And I've been very lucky to be around scientists who have told me their, you know, how they feel personally. I don't want to name names, but people that have a very public optimistic presence privately will be despairing. One of the things that I've been, I've tried to do is deal with some of these tough, tough issues and things, you know, people do not want to talk about, you know, what's going to happen to, you know, coastal cities. It's just been, it's too existential and enormous for most people. And I understand that, but I've been concerned about this since I first learned about the climate crisis in the early 90s. I've been friendly with Stephen Jay Gould, Tom Lovejoy, Peter Ward, E.O. Wilson, and all these people found value in what I brought to the table as an artist in terms of how I was able to deal with ideas. But, you know, art is a broad subject, and there are some terrible artists that do terrible work about nature. It's just, you know, the, the luck of the draw, that's what happens. You know, art is not necessarily good. It's just a description like a plumber. One of the questions I had further down, but we might as well sort of get into it now, is this idea of, you sound deeply pessimistic about, I mean, it's not like scientists have done it. One would have to be insane not to be concerned and let's just say skeptical about things going in a a way where there's long-term sustainability. So what, what do you think is the problem here? I mean, I think there have, like, it's not that, it's not a question, well, or maybe it is, like maybe there are. Let's do, I want to deal with a a question that you had in your text that I think is a good moment to talk about that now. What do I know that is true? Okay, we're going to get to the end. I like it. We're going to do the end Let's start at the end now. One thing I know is true is that humans are, like every other animal on this planet, animals. And part of or a huge part of our civilization has been trying to deflect and deny that fact because the idea of mortality, all animals have a life cycle and die. Humans don't want to face that. And that's really the disconnect that we have about these issues. People don't want to think about it because they're scared. And that's, I'm open to that. I'm, I'm sympathetic to that to a certain extent, but that's like, you know, very childish and infant, it's infantile. And we live in a very infantile culture. And that's really the main problem. Although, I mean, climate change, I mean, like, I don't, I don't think I'm going to die of climate change per se, but I am pretty sure that like my nieces and nephews will potentially have like the, the like the, the thought of dying, is it dying that's the no, problem or the thought? Well, I think of- dying and climate change are the same. I mean, they're all baked into the DNA of we are, mortal and the things in the world are transformable from our hands and it's this idea that we have you know a, a, a reach into nature now there are how many billions of us i can't remember 6.5 i can't how many i have no, I have no clue yeah you know. a lot <laughs> billion so i think that you know humans don't want to first of all most people are disconnected from nature and they don't want to think about it they don't want to go to the doctor because they don't want to know and they don't want to know about climate change. It's all the same impulse. Right. So, I mean, what keeps you motivated to making your work? I mean, in back of you right now, you have a massive painting that you said, and you told me before is just completed. So like what, 
if this is all for not like or you said do it's you, for not it's i never it's, said it was for not okay okay so it, i ain't going out like that I'm okay not, like some little bitch that's gonna fucking like roll over and die go quietly okay a good night. okay so all right I'm gonna go out fighting and i love what i do and i have great opportunities and I'm thrilled to be in a position where I can make this painting behind me, which is a commission for the Mystic Seaport Museum. It's going to open in May of 23. This painting, which is 24 feet long, along with 10 works on paper that are about six feet wide by four feet tall, deal with these issues that we've been discussing. And it's the painting is seen through the lens of their collection of watercraft that you can't really see in this because there's lights reflecting along the top, but there are 22 ships from the collection of the Mystic Seaport that are in chronological order that go across the horizon above the waterline. And the activity under the waterline are resources that have been exploited by those ships. Right. So I have a tremendous amount of pleasure in thinking about these things that are you know, one might perceive as, I mean, you don't think that life is bleak and a struggle, then you, you're not really self-aware. Right. Right. So, I mean, I guess then what, what do you want? What do you want from your, this is a sort of twist on the question, which is not what do you get from it, but what do you want to have happen to like your ideal audience or what do you. I really don't think that, listen, you know, the small fraction of people that care about the two things, the things that we're talking about Mm -hmm. today are already converted. We live in a system where we're, we're, we're basically trapped in this sort of matrix of frustratingly unsustainable activities like getting on a plane to go talk about climate change is the ultimate idiotic paradox where, and I've been rightly, you know, had, had my feet held to the fire. I've held my own feet to the fire. Who wants to live in a world where You have to go to an airport, get on a plane, go to Miami, go to Art Basel, spend, you know, four days traveling, doing this and that to talk about climate change because art fairs burn up too much fossil fuels. The system is so screwed up and we're trapped in it because no one has, no one's willing to to suffer the consequences of the pain that it's going to take to transform these policies that are in place that allow this to continue. Right. So, I mean, is there an opportunity? I mean, I think one of the things that that certainly this sort of this this programming and the exhibition are looking to sort of speak to is that if there is some unity of purpose between artists and scientists about these issues, I mean, does that feel like that's been a productive line of conversation for you? I mean, everything I do, I I there's a big book that's that accompanies this exhibition at the Mystic Seaport. And there's a historian, two historians, a scientist wrote essays about the history of the marine stuff in here and also the ecology of the marine stuff in here. And with a project like this, it's important to get it right because that's the content. Now, if I'm working on a movie like Life of Pi where it's fantasy, Ang Lee doesn't care if one fish in this thing I'm designing is from the Pacific, but the others from the Atlantic. It's all about allegory and metaphor. And it's not important, but it depends on the project. And the thing that I will go back to about artists is that, you know, there are great artists that work with these issues and terrible artists. It's really, artists are self-determined. Right. 
Right. I mean, as then people who are listening to this, though, I think who make art, I mean, do you think that in terms of, I mean, we sort of had this conversation earlier about being a warrior. (laughs) Is this a place where people who want to, is this where we should be putting our energy? Is this? I don't know. How would I know? Well, I mean, because you make objects that are actually meant to last and that are speaking to the culture. So I, I guess I sort of was wondering like what the sort of, like sort of if one had a if you could have like a fantasy of what the impact would be what would that that's such a like waste of time because I'm so aware of the system that I work in now right it doesn't really work like that I mean younger I had a dream even 20 years 22 years ago I was thinking about global warming climate change whatever and I thought oh you know, if I made a painting of what it would do to New York, that would make people care because they care about where they live. And I spent a couple of years working on this huge painting and worked with James Hansen and Cynthia Rosenzweig and all these scientists. And I got all the science pretty much as right as I could at the time. And then the show opens at the Brooklyn Museum. It traveled to seven other institutions and now is in the Smithsonian next to a Thomas Moran painting, dream come true. Couldn't be a better ending to the project. Mm -hmm. But when the show opens in May of 2004, May 15th, May 22nd, the day after tomorrow opens, and it totally makes climate change into some like bullshit disaster movie that makes no sense scientifically. And it's just another spectacle. And it's a big setback. Right. And then... Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth comes out and it's a big success. Meanwhile, no one, nothing changes. Right, right. So what am I, to, what can I say about that? I don't know. Right, right. So let's go back to the AMNH because I'm interested in, you have had a very long relationship with the AMNH. And so I just was sort of wondering, and obviously so much of your work, I mean, I do love, you, you are a very, very self-conscious person you know, in, in speaking about your impact in your work, you're clearly very self-conscious and your art is very self-conscious of the way in which it is part of a much longer conversation about nature and nature as then created into a, like a landscape or that sort of thing. So I was wondering if you could sort of talk about your sort of your visual and emotional relationship with the AMNH and that space. Well, I mean, I could just walk you through chronologically where as a kid, my mom spent two stints actually working there, one for Margaret Mead in her office, not for her directly, but part of that department, and the other for Stanley Freed, who is also an anthropologist in the in the 60s, two years separated those stints. So, so as a kid, I spent so much time at the museum just being you know, a sense of enchantment and learning about animals that lived all over the world. and you know, the Hall of African Mammals. I saw them building the Hall of Ocean Life when I was a kid and the Blue Whale, I remember the scaffolding in the late 60s and then the Hall of Reptiles and Amphibians. And I took classes there in, in ninth grade, I believe. And then when I went I went, to, went away to art school, I also had vivariums in my room that I modeled after the dioramas, you know, the turtle world and then frogs. Yeah. 
different parts of the world. I had six or seven tanks in my room on the Upper East Side. I was very, as my wife likes to point out, wow, you sure got a lot of things you wanted to get. I was very, very indulged in those things. And we'd go to places like Peru when I was six, about four months there and go to Australia. So I had access to the, you know, the sense of wonder in the world. And, but the, the museum was always the place where I went back to after I left art school, or even I was at, I went to RISD for two years and then went to school of visual arts for two years. Once I decided I wanted to be an artist, I would go back to the museum and go, well, you know, this is really ground zero, but what are the stories that aren't really mentioned? You know, there's the hall of North America and it talks about agriculture, but you know, there's this whole thing about, you know, agricultural plants and, but there's no story about DDT or what happens to the ecology of that area. So I started to see that I had an opportunity there to sort of take some of these tropes that were used and deal with some of the tougher issues that, you know, Monsanto might not wanna be um, told in, in that particular diorama in that institution. But I, as an artist, had an opportunity to do whatever the hell I wanted. And if Monsanto gets mad at me, it's great press. Right, right. There's an interesting disconnect between this idea of you being out in nature and you then bringing that sort of life into spaces and the way in which the Natural History Museum is inherently not alive and is not natural. I mean, do you think of yourself as sort of moving as this intermediary between this sort of cultural space wherein like people only have a few moments to digest sort of nature or a willingness to identify like that that we make it the AMNH encapsulates it for us in a way that is very easy then, that nature becomes very easy. Do you? Well, I mean, they're, they're both the, I consider my paintings a type of theater and, you know, dioramas are a type of theater and it's about telling stories in a, you know, basically two-dimensional space, three-dimensional narratives. And they're pretty coming from a similar tradition. Uh, so I don't really know what, so I don't really understand the question, I guess. Well, no, I mean, I was just sort of saying like that, that I do think one of the things that's interesting about the Natural History Museum is the way in which, and I think one of the instigator items that we have, the sort of mini polar bear diorama, like it is about sort of training people to see nature in these oh, sort of bite-sized. I remember, yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's a, all right. Actually, it's an interesting question because when I finally got around to going on so-called expeditions with friend, or other artist friends in 1990, 1990 was the first one. And then 19, through the 90s, I did a lot of that stuff when I was you know, willing to do it. And I, I was more willing to be uncomfortable. I remember one of the things that's, that's always a shock is that because you're used to watching things through media or dioramas, it takes a damn long time to find animals. Like sometimes you can't, you don't see shit for a week mm -hmm. and then suddenly you see something. It's when you least expect it. It's not this orchestrated thing that, and then I came to understand that, you know, um, Discovery Channel documentaries or National Geographic, some German guy suffering for years to get that. <laughs> just beating his feet and all sorts of stuff like that. So I really understood the amount of energy and how I understood how much, how, how much of a struggle it is to do anything. Right. Well, total boredom. Like, I mean, just sitting there waiting and waiting. Basically, it sucks. It's 900 degrees. <laughs> Nothing's happening. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. It's interesting though. I mean, and one of the other things that we have are these films of expeditions wherein then the sort of that are completely like as if being on an expedition is nothing but, you know, cooking a meal over a stove. And it's a tea time with crumpets. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That it's this. I mean, and I think it, it is interesting to think about the American Natural History Museum's they have an investment in that, in, in maintaining that belief, because I think it allows people to sort of feel like nature is accessible to them, which it is and it isn't, right? I mean, I think you're right. Uh, like if- One thing I realize is that you have to have money to do those sorts of things. And, you know, travel, any type of tourism is very expensive. Right. Right, right. So while we're on the topic, I've been asking everybody who we're interviewing about their instigator items. What was there anything that instigated you or provo- provoked you? Or and again, we sort of talked. I mean, they're about all the- they're all great, and I could have gone on for hours about each one. So I arbitrarily and forgive me, I don't have the titles in front of me. So remind me of the dinosaur in the sky. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's our Arthur Jansen. So Jansen, uh, I, um, I, yeah. I consider that a sort of flat-footed version of N.C. Wyeth, where yeah. obviously the fossil record is being expunged from the ground. And of course, either through, you know, transmorphification of this internal life of the scientists, they're imagining whatever they're 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 retrieving from the fossil record alive. Now, see, I had an entirely different take of it. I thought it was the spirit of the dinosaur looking down on the scientists. That's that good were, Who cares? Yeah, no, I just I, I like but it. I yeah, no, I love that. But painting. what's what's funny about that is that of course it's filtered through the eyes of whenever that painting was made, and the dinosaurs are really an artifact of that era, and that's a good. It looks like I guess what is it teens. What it's the 30s, yeah. 30s. The 30s. Right, it's post-Charles R. Knight, and the dinosaurs look slow and slightly dim-witted, and somehow they deserve to be extinct. Well, but that's a good, that's a good I mean, I just Yeah, I love it because it's also, it's trying to do so many things. Like, it's trying to be like, look at how amazing and fun. I mean, because there's nothing that I think that is more boring than than digging up dinosaur bones. It's like totally different. There is much more boring, but I won't bore you with that. But I think there is, you totally, right? I mean, I think- scale, at least they have bones. They're like, oh, you see something. What about if you're dealing with like micro fossils in Baja, California, where there's nothing to do for days, if not weeks? Which and hot and gross and, and yeah and just, I, I, I like the idea on paper but i'm bored out of my damn mind yeah no absolutely um, but and then there also is no dinosaur spirit that is also looking at you so that also right. also ties into native american like you know the idea of the spirit in the clouds and of course as i mentioned earlier ncy who did those great paintings illustrations if we want to be specific about what it is to be an american right and i think right. they're fantastic Right. You also like the Bamboraptor, if I remember correctly. You had that. Bamboraptor, Raptor. First of all, who doesn't love that name? Right. Second of all, it is part <laughs> of the Paleo Revolution that was started with Robert Backer in right. the 1980s, where it was suddenly decided through the discovery of fossils that the fossil record that's the, the dinosaurs or specific, you know, families of dinosaurs were much closer to birds. And that thing looks 
completely different than any dinosaur you would imagine. It looks like a, you know, psychedelic chicken with a lizard face stuck on it. And it's pretty hallucinatory looking. And, you know, I, I, I'm old enough to resent the idea of brightly colored active dinosaurs, even though, though I know it's true. That's how, yeah. Well, there was a lot of, they had a show about a year, like right before the pandemic, I think, yeah. where they, you know, like, and there was a lot of people who were like, this is not, this is not my dinosaur. Right. And, so yeah. they're, you know, basically you run into the nostalgia of your childhood. What do you, what are your expectations? Right, right. Well, I mean, because I think that it's like now also the slippage of everybody wants it to be kind of like a dragon too. So the old ones did look more like dragons than, you know, like dragons, whatever that is. But yeah. Is that like the bad influence of Game of Thrones? Well, I think so. But I, I don't, you know, I don't want to speak. I would say that's the third best dragons in film history, if you want to be specific. The Dragon Slayer Dragon from Dragon Slayer 1981 is the best. And then Harryhausen's Dragon and Seventh Voyage of Sinbad from 1958 is the second best. I am only familiar with the first one. I think that in the latest Game of Thrones, they have they have a nice speed on the dragons, which is what I like. I like to see the dragons moving. I like I realize that I don't like them to be like big like airplanes. I like them to be very nimble, which is you know yeah. And we all have what we all want what we want from our dragons. Right. So you've already sort of answered this, and this is going to be our last question. We're all animals, and that's your truth. Do you want to add anything onto that or expand on it? Just no. everywhere you turn, there's an attempt to pretend that's not true. Why do we not want to be animals? Can I, can I just die? Who wants to die? Because of the dying thing. Okay. I I love your truth because it's so neat. It's just like, I have to say, there's all, if you listen to the whole series, a lot of people are very, first of all, a lot of people don't even want this question. They reject the question. They don't want to talk about truth. Yeah. Because it's also, I think, I mean, I, I grew up in a postmodern moment. Like I, I just, it feels also like you're, you're declaring something that will, you'll inevitably have to retract. So I think. I first, find that position. I mean, not, I'm not pointing yeah. fingers. That is a timid and sad position to have. I, I, I think that it is the position of people who grew up being told that there is no truth and that any truth. I, I mean, I'm, I don't know how old you are, but we're yeah. roughly the same age. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. So I think that there's a fear and, I, and I, I'm not, I don't even want to say it's a fear. I think that there is a, a reluctance. Um, I mean, that's sort of why we did this whole series is because of actually an argument that I had with a philosopher about feelings about truth and why we avoid speaking languages of truth. I think actually, I, I, that's why I think what you're doing is important. And I was thrilled that you asked me to be involved. I think one of the, 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 the tragic and toxic alchemies of the moment is that if, if there's ever a time when we need to listen to science, which is paradoxically the truth until proven otherwise, and it's right. constantly being revised, and that's the point, right? right. I, it makes me so irritated, if not disdainful, of people that question science as if like, oh, see, it's wrong. Like, well, the point of science is to be constantly challenged until something better comes along that's provable. We need to know certain things and have a very clear idea of how we're going to respond to this information now more than ever. And because of the pathetic combination of, you know, a number of issues in one political party more than another, because they're, they're, you know, I, I really don't know how these people can get out of bed in the morning and <laughs> these people up, 
How, why are they invited to Thanksgiving? They'll just go to Twitter now. That's that's where they'll all be. So yeah, it's perfect for the friggin' jackass that just bought it. Who? It's just a horrible moment. So it couldn't be worse. So, so we need truth. We need science. That's what you're saying is that like that those are stable. The only thing that's going to that, I mean, it is an emergency. We're, we're going off a cliff. It's the last thing we need is some like, you know, subjectivity police mm-hmm. say anything I say Matt, is, you know, is as valid as an expert. And as Obama so wonderfully said about Herschel Walker, he's at an airport and he sees Herschel Walker and he says, and I'm paraphrasing, and I don't have the same sort of evangelical cadence that I need to make this effective. He's like, well, Herschel, I mean, Heisman Trophy winner, I I really want you to fly this plane that I'm about to get on. Expertise matters. Right, right. Absolutely. Alexis, it's been lovely talking with you. Thank you so much. And again, everybody, if you are watching this, you can also have an opportunity to listen to this on the podcast. And again, thank you very much, Alexis. Thanks for asking, Alexis. Take care. (laughs) Bye. You've been listening to a special Seeing Truth episode of the Why We Argue podcast, Future of Truth edition. Many thanks to Toby Napolitano, at the University of California, Merced, who handles our sound. And thanks to our sponsors, the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, the Henry Luce Foundation, and Vanderbilt University. The Why We Argue podcast is a proud member of the New Books Network.